third issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 278 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have done no ghosting this weekend, neither for Halloween nor in my pottery class. No ghosting! No ghost. Are you proud of me? <laughs> I am. We did discuss it beforehand. I had words you with you that there was to be no ghosting. <laughs> we weren't on the pottery wheel though, so who knows if I get a go on that. It might be hard to resist. I don't know what either of you are talking about. <laughs> You've watched Community, haven't you, Jen? No. In the pottery class, there's a big sign that says, No ghosting. Oh, I see. Oh, my love. What did you make anyway, Mick? I made a little milk jug. Looks kind of like a fat penguin, which I'm not mad at. I feel guilty for giving up smoking because you could have had a really easy win there and just made an ashtray, which is what everybody yeah, makes because, in Yeah, because, you know, you and I have chosen not to have kids, but where are you going to get your, like, shit bits of stuff for around the house? And I could, <laughs> exactly. I could fill that gap in your life Exactly. I'm still waiting for Jen to send me a macaroni card, but here we are. <laughs> oh, mate, I mean, if you want one, they are ten a penny round this gap, so I can <laughs> certainly arrange it. Just you wait till she starts school, Jen. I think it, like, multiplies by about a hundred. Oh, I'm not sure it could do. I used to go to a pottery class when I was about eight, and among the many things, the many bits of shit that I made... I don't know why I made this. I think they must have, um, it must have been just the thing they told us to make. I have downstairs somewhere a small pottery dusty bin. Wow. <laughs> I met Dusty Bin. I met the real Dusty Bin. Oh, it's all coming out. And Ted Rogers. Uh, uh, I was going to say swanky <laughs> press event, but it can't have been that swanky. Well. <laughs> I was very excited. And it's the same night that Eddie Large uh, trod on my toe in a toilet queue because Toby Anstis was taking his time um so yeah it was, was quite the eventful evening uh but yeah I got to meet Ted Rogers and Dusty Bin Give, do us your best three two one I mean and if I will pretend you did it because no one will know different great it's all right I didn't swear that's the key to it you've got to not swear well I'll um I'll find Dusty Bin for you and um I'll take a little snap for you maybe you can stick it in the mail out whoever's on mail out GTs this week. It, it's me. I'm going to write a riddle to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've had my first fire brackets deliberate this year. Before we get on to that, how many accidental fires have you had this uh, year? Uh Oh wait, I can see you've got that sign up behind you that says there have been no accidental fires this month. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't had any accidental ones. But just to be clear, I did. Ha- I had a fire. I meant to in my fireplace. You always think, oh, this fire's not doing anything at all. It's not warm at all. This is shit. And then you walk into the bathroom and <laughs> your glasses like steam up because <laughs> it's so fucking cold in there. It's a deceptive form of heat. The fireplace it heats it up quite quite slowly, so you don't notice. But yeah, and I put. If if anyone follows me on Instagram, they'll know this. I put one of the cat houses in front of the um, fire so the cats could enjoy it. And Joe got inside it and Peggy just sat on the top of it and <laughs> collapsed it. Excellent work all round. Dickhead. I thought you meant like a garden fire or a bin fire. Or I didn't realise you meant an actual oh, fire. So that's enough, delightful, There's enough Hannah. bin fires in the world. We shouldn't be starting oh. them ourselves. Yeah. No. I'm Jen Offord, and I've booked my driving test. Hooray! Yay. How exciting! I'm really excited. I'm excited. Don't get too excited. It's not for six months. Whoa! 
In a way, yes. though, Jen, that's good. You've got a date to work at. You feel like you've got a lot of time in leading up to it. As long as you get yep. some regular practice in, you're going to pass that. The sad news is there's nothing for me in Clacton, which is where I've been mostly learning to drive. So I'm going to have to fucking learn how to drive in Colchester, lads, oh. which there's a lot of roundabouts, apparently. So... um Sad times. But I suppose I'll know how to drive in more than one place, so that yeah. will, I'm sure, set me in good stead. Driving, for, uh... You don't want to pass your test and only be able to go to Clacton, Jen. Yeah. I don't know. Nobody I don't know. That. I learned to drive in Milton Keynes, so I was immediately very, very good at roundabouts. I don't like them, Hannah. Not Milton Keynes. I, I, I know very little of Milton Keynes, but I, I don't enjoy a roundabout. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Milton Keynes is about 75% roundabouts. I know it's a cliche that everyone always says, but it's because it's true. Most yeah. of the people are laid out on a grid system. So, yeah. <laughs> Coming up, I talked to science writer, poker player, and now author Alex O'Brien about poker, why everyone should learn to play it, and Alex's new book, The Truth Detective. Talking of learning to play it, Mickey and I, I can already play it, but Mickey and I are off to a poker tournament type thing later this keeps changing every time you describe it to me and now i am a feared uh well it's a book launch in which yeah there are some poker games going with prizes <laughs> what do points make a lot of my house <laughs> uh, just me cross clasping jen's dusty bit <laughs> that sounds rude you can have it hannah if it will if it will help you out you can have that dusty bin if you need to sell it I'll let you do it, it's fine. When I've got grey cards and nothing left to, to bear and I just go, hang on guys, and just slam that on the table. <laughs> I can't believe Jen keeps allowing us to refer to it as a dusty bin. <laughs> oh, it's a one of a kind. Anyway, um, I talk to director Anastasia osei Kafour about biological clocks, the weight of expectations, a new play, Brenda's Got a Baby. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, we're talking about the WTA finals, among other things. You don't hear the name Brenda much anymore, do you? You don't, no. Although my next-door neighbour, when we were teenagers growing up, um, had a pug called Brenda. Didn't Rich Hall's Otis Lee Crenshaw only marry women called Brenda? He had like seven ex-wives <laughs> yeah, in the world called Brenda. <laughs> And finally, get ready to get the hat kicked clean off your head as we watch 1953's Calamity Jane. But first, funding fuck-ups and ferrets. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we, like so many others, are sad to hear that Muffy Perry has died aged just 54. I've seen the following taken from a Tom Power podcast he did in 2022 doing the rounds and I'd like to share it here too. So this is a quote from Matthew Perry. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life, but the best thing about me, bar none, is that if an alcoholic or drug addict comes up to me and says, will you help me? I will always say, yes, I know how to do that. I will do that for you, even if I can't always do it for myself. So I do that whenever I can, in groups or one-on-one. And I created the Perry House in Malibu, a sober living facility for men. I also wrote my play, The End of Longing, which is a personal message to the world, an exaggerated form of me as a drunk. I had something important to say to people like me and to people who love people like me. When I die, I know people will talk about friends, friends, friends. And I'm glad of that. Happy I've done some solid work as an actor, as well as given people multiple chances to make fun of my struggles on the World Wide Web. But when I die... As far as my so-called accomplishments go, 
It would be nice if friends were listed far behind the things I did to try to help other people. I know it won't happen, but it would be nice. Oh, Matthew Perry is so sad. It is really sad. Now, Mick, do you remember a story from a while back about Birmingham City Council going bankrupt? It was the women, what did it, Jen? Yeah, that's that's certainly the uh, the headline the fucking BBC led with at the time. Uh, they, <laughs> they changed it later. But uh, yeah, a lot of the reporting around it nodded to a huge amount of money the council owed to workers, most of them women, uh, after it was asked to settle historic equal pay claims. Well, it turns out it might not just have been the fault of those harpies wanting their equal pay. As the Guardian reports this week that a number of other councils could be set to follow Birmingham into the financial abyss. Good. Nope. In these cases, it's not because of women wanting money owed to them, but because of, and I am simplifying this a bit here, the housing crisis. According to the Guardian, councils are being pushed to the brink by the ever-increasing demand for emergency accommodation. It reports that millions of pounds a year are being spent by councils, in some cases between a fifth and half of their available cash. Fucking hell. Yep. To meet unprecedented demand by families facing homelessness. Analysis conducted by the newspaper found 10 councils where more than £1 in every £10 of available expenditure, so money that hasn't been ring-fenced for something else, is also included in that was used on emergency accommodation in the 2022-23 financial year. And why is this happening? Well, it's a combination of reasons. First and foremost, of course, the lack of availability of affordable housing. How long has there been a housing crisis for? Hmm, I mean, a while, right? Uh, They could probably have built more affordable housing. Look, Jen, it's very complicated. You've got to take a lot of things into... Yes, yes, they they absolutely could have done. Oh, yeah, it is more complicated than that because, like I said, it's not just the housing crisis. It's the cost of living crisis, the rising costs of rent and mortgages leading to people losing their homes or not being able to secure homes in the first place. It's unscrupulous landlords who no one seems terribly bothered about regulating, evicting tenants and inflating prices because desperate councils will pay them. It's austerity, it's budget cuts at local and national level. In short, it's 13 plus years of neglect by the Tory government and I'm sure a few more before they took over. Alexa, when is the next general election going to be? Not soon enough, Jen. Nope. I don't know what Alexa sounds like. That was my best Alexa impression, but she just sounded like me. I don't know either. I have a, uh, I have like an Android phone, so I was going to do like a, okay, Google, but um, more people know Alexa, don't they? So, you know. Yeah. Sorry, other search bots apply or, or, or whatever. So Jen, I have a question for you. How many times do we think UK police have apologised to women this year? <sighs> Probably not as many times as they should have done. <laughs> yeah. And how many more times should it have apologised to women? Uh, big numbers. I don't have accurate numbers. I don't know that I can count that high. I certainly shouldn't yeah. fucking have to on this score. But here we are. And yeah, oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. As Wilshire Police has said, it is truly sorry after failing to disclose information that could have protected those most at risk from domestic violence. As ever on this topic, both women and men, and of course many children, are affected by domestic violence. 
but women are disproportionately more likely to be victims of domestic abuse. The thing is, when you know the signs to spot, it is possible to spot a lot of potential abusers, not least if they've rodeoed before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so the Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme, often known as Clare's Law, was implemented across all England and Wales police forces in 2014. This enables police to disclose information to a victim or potential victim of domestic abuse about their partner's or ex-partner's previous abusive or violent offending. But Wiltshire Police has confirmed that some of those who made an application were not given information that could have protected them. Indeed, more than 3,500 applications were made between April 2015 and August 2023, with information being disclosed in just 1,195 cases. So Wiltshire Police is now going to review all of those 3,500 plus Clare's Law applications, and so far one member of staff has been suspended. Wiltshire Police's Chief Constable, Catherine Roper, apologised and told anyone who felt they were in immediate danger to dial 999. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks! It's just another disgusting mouthful of the bad apple pie, isn't it, Jen? I shouldn't laugh because literally people are dying. But uh, yeah, just just call 999. Okay, cool. And then they just won't do anything. Mm. So lovely. Because yeah, in a a recent refuge survey, the domestic abuse charity discovered that half of women don't believe that the police will properly investigate reports of domestic abuse and sexual assault. And fair, they probably won't. Police forces seem to be doing very little to root out abusers in their own ranks, with only 24% of officers who are being investigated for abusing women being suspended while that investigation happens. 76% still just out on the streets. On that particular note, we can do something at least. Refuge just started a petition to the Home Secretary. Fucking hell, the putting stuff Great. in her hands. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we can try to do something requesting an enforced mandatory suspension of all potential abusers until and only if they're cleared following investigation. Google Refuge Petition Police and follow the link to sign. I have signed. More police apologies next week. <laughs> There's another one actually uh, just, just the other week wasn't there for some racism but then um, then everyone gave, gave the offended officers loads of money. So. Oh yeah, they've raised £126,000 haven't they? Yeah, incredible scenes. Lucky them. Anyway, Rick, would you would you like some good news? Yeah, please put it in my eyes. Okay. As ever, we are we're scratching around for good news mm-hmm. a little bit here. Literally, in this case, lols. A welcome to aforementioned scratcher, Sparkle, a champagne-coloured ferret. I looked that up actually. I looked up what uh, different col- a colour chart, a ferret colour <laughs> chart, if you will. Barrow and ball of ferrets. Mm-hmm. Who was so champagne is is the correct terminology anyway? In case anyone doubted my ferret knowledge, there's so many things I question about you, Jen. But never that, <laughs> never that. So Sparkle was found and rescued at a Victoria Tube station in London last week. Staff called the RSPCA when Sparkle was spotted weaseling around the joint. Here you go, look at you in your element. <laughs> I know, the best of times was discovered by animal rescue officer Matt Hawkins in the cupboard that the barriers fold into. Oh. I guess that means the like concertina cupboard. For a while I thought it meant the bar- the tube barriers, but they don't they don't go into they don't a, have cupboard, a cupboard, do they? They just, no. they just flap open. Anyway, <laughs> more of this gold next week. Uh, we're not finished <laughs> though. 
She's very tame, said Hawkins, leading him to believe that she had either been abandoned or escaped her owner. So if you did lose a ferret on the Victoria line last week, Sparkle was taken to Finsbury Park Animal Hospital and will be rehomed from an RSPCA centre unless claimed. Can I keep her? How do you think Amaran Meow Meow would get on with a ferret? That's a good point. She'd probably scratch his face off. Or he might scratch hers off. I don't know. There'd be some scratching for sure. More news next week. <laughs> well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where the one issue still holding women back is sexism. I know, you'd have thought having done sexism of the week for more than 250 episodes, we'd be running out of sexism. But no, it's a big issue. A many tentacled beast. <laughs> comprised mainly of dealing with other people's shit. The most recent British Social Attitudes survey, published in September, found that 63% of women in mixed-sex households did more than their fair share of housework, with 32% of men admitting that they did less than they should. Well done them for putting their hands up. (laughs) Now, obviously, this affects all sorts of aspects of a woman's life, but we're going to focus on creativity this week, specifically writing. Women's Writing Magazine, Ms. Lexia. I love the name. That's very Uh, good. Yeah, it's to represent the gap between potential and a woman actually being able to use her talent. Anyway, Ms. Lexia is celebrating 25 years and 100 editions this December and has revealed the biggest issue still impeding women's literary careers is time, or more accurately, a lack of it. Jen's nodding. She knows. Hard relates. (laughs) She relates. In an update of research conducted by the magazine for its first ever edition in 1999, Ms. Lexia found that although women these days are more confident about their literary skills and believe that there are more opportunities for them to be published, lack of time is still a major barrier to their creativity. 25 years ago, Ms. Lexia found that though women were twice as likely as men to buy books, study literature and attend creative writing courses, men were 40% more likely to submit their writing to publishers and agents, twice as likely to be published and win literary awards, and three times as likely to be reviewed. It's not, it's not an even playing field yet, but attitudes within the publishing industry have shifted somewhat in that two and a bit decades. But it's frustrating that, given opportunities for women writers have expanded with writing courses, writing groups, women's awards, expansion of self-publishing, all being especially beneficial... Inequality in the home is what is still sabotaging women's literary careers. Ms. Lexia's founder, Debbie Taylor, commented, It's great to see women writers benefiting from new opportunities for skills development, peer support and publishing, and Ms. Lexia is proud to have played a part in that for the last 25 years. But lack of time remains a major challenge for them. It's been calculated that, on average, women have seven fewer hours of free time per week than men, time they could have been spent writing. This basic inequality, which has remained unchanged for decades, means that many women are prevented from achieving their literary potential and the world is missing out on some serious talent. I mean, I'm surprised this is little as seven hours, to be honest. But <laughs> Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Alex O'Brien, journalist, competitive poker player and author of a new book, The Truth Detective. Thank you so much for joining us. Alex. Hi Hannah, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I just want to ask, just for you to differentiate, just so everyone's clear on this, the difference between a competitive poker player and a professional poker player. That's a really good question. I've not been asked that one before. I guess 
the way I would explain that is a professional poker player makes a living. An amateur player will go and play on the weekends, perhaps, and double in it, you know, knows rules, has a bit of fun with friends on the weekend. Nothing too serious, maybe do, do one or two tournaments here and there. And a competitive player where I see myself is somebody for whom open the primary source of income, but for whom the game and the sport is still poor. So I will travel and play certain tournament stops. Yeah, I make a bit of an income. Yes, but I have not decided for it to become my you know, day job because I do love science writing. I am a science writer at heart. That will always be my job. Now, our listeners will know I love poker for a number of reasons. I learned it when I was, say, about 10. My dad, his brothers, they played a lot of cards. They taught me how to play Brag first, which is kind of a kind of an entry drug into poker. You know, you give you a rough idea of what the hands are. Then we just went straight in to, uh, we used to play seven card stud because that was what my granddad liked playing. Now, more commonly, I would play Texas Hold'em. But I think... This might sound like a romanticised idea, but it is really true that poker is one of the few games that you can succeed at, even if you start off with a, a shit hand, you know, which is quite a nice metaphor for life, isn't it? What is it that really drew you to poker first? I have so many things to say about that. I'm so excited that you were taught it at an early age. I'm a massive ambassador for children how to play poker, but more to that later. What drew me to poker was, I think, culturally... If we think about it, poker has been sort of positioned as a guy's game, right? It's Absolutely, the guys. Yeah. And if you think about it, when we watch movies, it's the boys having poker night and the girls are sitting on the couch with a bottle of wine. That's how it's always positioned. Oh, it's in like underground drug dens or yeah. mafiosos playing. When mine told me that she's a poker player, my, my brain just went aflame. And I said to her, please teach me. And then she taught me and I absolutely fell in love with the game because as you just told us you can have the best hand in poker you can which is a pair of aces and you can still lose mm. there is a lot more to this game so what blew my mind was that this is actually a highly complex multi-dimensional puzzle game and i'm already really into strategic games but this just blew my mind so i wanted to learn how to play. And then the second aspect is obviously, as a woman, I hate being discriminated based on my gender. Mm. So anything that says you can't because you're a woman, I just want to do more of. Yeah. So, and in a way, ever since I started playing and doing really well and enjoying doing well, especially against players who clearly do not like me sitting down at the table because they feel entitled that this, this is their space. I feel like I have been fighting gender inequality by proving that women can play, mm. by making a point of, you know, just with actions showing, yeah, actually, you got this one wrong. Yeah. It's interesting. A couple of years ago, I was in, um, just before lockdown, I was in Canada. I was in a bar at Niagara Falls and it was out of season. This bar was totally empty and we'd gone in for a drink and they had a TV up. And they were, there was poker on the telly. And everybody else was like, this bar's crap, we're going to go home. And I was like, no, I want to stay and watch this. Because there were four of them. There was a young lad who was, I would say, looked like he probably had a YouTube channel. He was, was that sort of perky, you know, youngster. 
There was a guy who looked like a good old boy, like properly looked like he had a lot of guns at home. There was a guy who looked like he, he wanted to be in the mafia. He was sort of dressed in a really sharp suit. And uh, and there was the actress Jennifer Tilly. Oh, Jennifer, yes. I was like, I want to see what happens here. I want to see how they react to her. I want to see how she plays it. I mean, she's hyper feminine, isn't she? And she's got the sort of a, quite a girly voice. And I thought, how is she going to present this at a poker table? And she was brilliant. She's like, I'm a woman and don't you forget it, you know. But she's also a shark. She's an incredible poker player and always fun to watch. I wonder what that was. It was maybe Poke After Dark or something. Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, you have some really strong female players now. And, and there are actually concerted efforts now with the likes of Poker Power, for example. Poker Power is an organization that was set up by a woman in finance. So she's a self-made billionaireess called Jennifer Just, who decided that... To help her own daughter succeed in life, she needed to teach her daughter how to play poker. So she didn't start to just uh, get her daughter and her girlfriends around the table. Mm. Then it grew from that to the parents because the moms wanted to play. And then her own staff at Peak Six, her finance company, were sort of asking her, like, hang on a second, Jen, Uh, shouldn't we be taught as well? And then now... She set up Poker Power where their mission is to teach one million women how to play poker. Not because she wants sparks to be populating in poker tournaments, but because of the many transferable skills. It's you know the benefits women, especially women, can draw from playing poker. Mm. So yeah, we will see a rise in more female players. Although <laughs> at the moment, I say this, out of the hundred and 20 and so good players in the world. I think this is a data that's not quite verified, but we estimate it to be that. There's only about less than 10% play, uh, are female players. Can I ask you then, in, in the same way that like football, mm-hmm. women's football is now huge, which is great. And so now there's sort of a conversation about how women don't play football quite like men play football. They're, the way they approach it is is slightly different and that could be something to do with physique or it could be something to do with psychology. But that women's football isn't quite the same game as men's football. And for many people, they would say in a positive way. Do women approach poker differently to men approach poker, do you think? So I don't have the data. You know, I'm a data girl. So <laughs> unless I have the data, I, I won't talk to that. But what I can say is that the, the way women come to the tables is different, right? We don't even get our seat there. Men or boys grow up being taught how to play poker. And to forget about poker, they are being taught how to take risks and be courageous and be out there Mm. and climbing trees and do different things. We are environmentally conditioned. Women and girls are environmentally conditioned to sort of be more cocooned and more nurturing and more apprehensive about things. So so from the outset, our mindset, we have this sort of headwind that we have to fight against before we even get to playing poker. Mm. What men and boys have learned when they get to the age of taking on jobs or applying for jobs is taking risks. Yeah. Failing over, over what women then learn by playing poker is the sort of repetition of risk-taking, the repetition of failing, picking yourself up and going, okay, next. And building confidence through this process and understanding capital allocation, 
getting comfortable with money and finance. So there's a lot of yeah. benefits. And I'm talking to another poker player, so you're nodding because it makes sense, right? So it's just a, a, a tool for us to reframe our attitude to risk, grow confidence and just learn how to fail more. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's the most valuable lesson that poker ever taught me and it taught me it young which is don't put anything on the table you can't afford to lose. We didn't actually get pocket mm. money. We worked, we did jobs that my dad paid us to do and he would quite happily take that money back off us playing cards with us. He, that was a lesson. I remember my uncle, what my uncle Kevin taking £3.62 off me and me being like, I thought it was the end of the world in 1980, whatever. Hannah, I'd done a lot of jobs for £3.62. So yeah, it did teach me about not being flashed with my money. But actually, the other thing it really, really helped with was I'm really bad at maths. And actually, when my maths teacher, when he found out that I played cards, he taught me statistics by saying, look at look at how this works. Look at what what's your odds of drawing an ace? I think it really helped me with those, definitely. Yeah, and you don't have to be a maths genius, right? Yeah. You know, this sort of idea that we have to be really good at mathematical calculations, whereas maths is so much more inclusive, I think is the word, because if you have sort of a rough understanding of the probabilistic environments or the statistical calculations, then that's good enough to yeah. help you guide you through a decision, be it on or off the table. You have to know exact numbers but so long as you have an idea, sort of understanding how those probabilities weigh up against the risk, then, you know, that's already good enough. Mm. Your opening lines of your book, in fact, say, people who don't know poker think it's all about bluffing. It isn't. True. But what you do say in this book is that what poker can give you is an opportunity to pick up clues as to who is and isn't telling the truth. So, could you tell us a little bit more about the concept of poker face? <laughs> Which I have a terrible poker face. But that said, I don't when I'm playing poker in real life, when I'm really shocked by something or I'm really amused, I can't keep it in. But actually, I'm, I am better when playing poker. But I've had to work at it. So, so this idea about poker face, you know, there's a lot of misperceptions about the game. And I don't know where sort of bluffing and poker face comes from, but let's talk about bluffing first bluffing is actually as you know a very small part of the arsenal of a poker player because for bluff to be successful it has to be there but it also has to make sense sort of it's a strategic build-up of a story that you're telling in a hand so it has to kind of sort of make sense and the poker face well again it's it's just a small part what's I am saying in the book is that we don't, the, the, the poker face isn't going to help you win the, in the game. Mm -hmm. What we should be aware of is our own perceptions of the other players. So when we sit down at the table, there is an array of different nationality, ages, financial backgrounds, you know, not so much gender, but yeah. there's just a variety of humans around. And what we do as humans is immediately have these first impressions and we base our decision making and ideas about the certain players on those first impressions 
what would be great to do is that you're aware of those first impressions and then verify them against what this player is doing mm. and how they're acting, how they're behaving. What I'm very strongly saying in the book is don't look for the lies, be it on the table or off the table. Look for what you can verify because humans are actually really bad at detecting lies or picking up tells that are indications of lies or deceptions. There's no real deception tells anyway. But what we can do is, like I said, poker is a puzzle game. Try to pick pick the pieces together and see if you can fit it together and see how much of the picture comes into light and how much you're missing. I think as well, there's a lesson to be had. I mean, I'm telling you this, of course you know this, in knowing when to get out. And just for, for anyone who's listening who doesn't play poker yet, one of the things that I think is a bit like poker, chess gets compared to it a lot, but I actually think Scrabble is quite like poker in some ways in that you can hang on for a letter in the same way that you can hang on for a card. And you can be really hopeful, but eventually you've got to get a point where you say it's not going to happen. So I suppose in a way it's beating that idea that somewhere in the back of your head you feel like it's inevitable that this is going to happen and throw that away and then work out what the actual chances of it happening are. I think what you're saying is it teaches you a little bit of patience. But perhaps not over patience. Is that right? <laughs> not, not to be too patient, not to just have blind yeah. confidence that something will happen just because, I don't know. I think a lot of people have the idea that, like I say, especially around games like poker, because it's got sort of a, a, mm-hmm. a level of poetry to it when you talk about it at, from a wider picture, that somehow some things will just happen. Somehow you will be, if people really, really need to win, they will win. And of course, that's, you know, that's how people end up addicted to gambling. But the idea that I think you really have to throw that idea out of that I really, I really need this and therefore I will win rather than the chances of that you that you're waiting for in Scrabble or that heart that you're waiting for in, in will turn up. It is sort of a balancing of, you know, picking your moment. You know, you know in poker, you don't get dealt aces every other hand, right? Yeah. Fairly rare. You get dealt a lot of crappy hands and crappy hands, no cards, no picture cards yeah. and what have you. If your chip stacks, oh, do you have to decide, do I make a move now? Do I make it later? What's the best so you you have to on the spot risk assessments right on the spot what's my move how am I going to do this it really teaches you that that's absolutely right can I ask you does does being a woman there aren't many of you in poker in the same way that there aren't a lot of women in boardrooms and I do wonder if we were to use that comparison does the fact that people are likely to underestimate you actually work to your advantage yes all the time still but it's just because there's so if you us, every single tournament season I, I play, there's two, three at least really interesting stories, always, but always the same. Misogynist, a man's man who like mm. looks at me and says things like, oh, so you don't play bad for a woman. I'm like, what do you mean for a woman? Oh, there was a French guy. A French guy, I mean, not that there's anything to do with any nationality, but it's just because he had this accent and that's in my head I basically cracked his aces what, what, what does that mean cracking aces basically I beat his aces with a lesser hand but played it so terribly he practically advertised that he was holding aces so I knew what hand he had and then I won and took all of his chips he did Yay. not like that <laughs> and he said women don't play aggressively and that's a huge generalization but how many have you played with there's so few of yeah. us around. 
this sort of general statement and he was really angry that he lost to me. Those type of men do not like losing to women or folding to women. It's still there, but as I said, so as you're solid in your foundational knowledge of the game, you can fight this sort of attitude just with your actions. And that's what I love about this game. I don't have to even say anything. I'll just casually take all the chips from the middle, stack them up in front of me. <laughs> Mickey sent me the thing about this book and she was like, you like poker. And the... I can be quite cynical about people say, oh, you can learn this and then apply it to your life here. But immediately when I heard you were doing that with poker, I thought, oh my God, I can absolutely see where she's coming from with that. Because yeah, like you say, it's confidence, it's it's risk-taking. It's it's so interesting. In London, at the Hippodrome, once a month, my friend Kerry Jane runs. She is a poker room director, by the way. A poker room run by a woman. She's <laughs> awesome. So Kerry Jane Craig runs the Daily's Night. And it's been growing. We are literally bursting out of the room because every single time there are new players coming, female players coming in, never been in a casino, and you just can see the light bulbs excitement happening like that transformation where they just realize how amazing this game is and how cool it is and that they can play because they have always associated this feel this heavily male dominated feel just to be for men you know they have because they've been told by society by popular culture and by other men that poker is for so it's really really lovely and it's just empowering. And I'm hoping, whilst this book is not a feminist manifesto at yeah. all, <laughs> it's a nonfiction science book, but I hope it does inspire and empower other women because it does address a little bit uh, when we talk about risk and risk management and the section in the book, it does talk about misogyny a little bit and our idea about why women supposedly don't like to take risk. This is a massive misbehavior. It's not women like to take risk. It's when women do take risk and they fail because everybody will fail at some mm. point. They're treated differently. So when when a man fails, it's like, oh, he was courageous, he was visionary, just didn't work out. And when women fail, the vocabulary, the terminology is very, very different. So they'll be like, oh. It was crazy. It was um, a silly idea. And, you know, it's like inabilities, like immediately there are comparisons to skill levels associated with Mm. that failure. So we don't get treated the same even then. Again, there's just so much about this game that has not reached the mainstream, the general public. I'm hoping that what it will do is to just dispel some of these misconceptions about poker mm. with, you know, just bringing heavy duty science. You know, it, 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 it really is a science book. The poker is just a little thread. It doesn't teach you how to play. That's yeah. a key thing. Uh, <laughs> you don't learn how to play poker by reading this book. <laughs> The Truth Detective, A Poker Player's Guide to a Complex World by Alex O'Brien out on the 2nd of November. It's great because it's also riddled with lots of just fun facts. I really enjoyed the question of, is poker really a game of chance? Which was an attempt to get round the rules of where you could gamble in America. But actually, it's quite an interesting philosophical question, I think. Yeah, I I hope the readers will make their mind up once they see how much all the different skill sets are underpinned by deep scientific method. So it was really an excuse for me to write about all the different sciences. 
I'm joined by Anastasia Osei-Kafour, director of Brenda's Got a Baby, a new play showing at the New Diorama Theatre from the 31st of October to the 2nd of December. Hello, Anastasia. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, to start off with, can you please tell us a little bit about Brenda's Got a Baby and how you came to be involved in it? So Brenda's Got a Baby is about a woman called Emma and she's approaching 30 and basically she's feeling the pressure, the societal pressure, the familial pressure, the cultural pressure to get married and have a baby. And so it's about her journey navigating that pressure and the effect that that pressure has on her and it actually causes her to spiral and kind of, you know, she, she breaks it as a result of it. But it's a comedy. So um, though that might sound quite serious, it's kind of really hilarious. And it's just like a play about real life and what people experience day to day. And uh, I guess the milestones that women are, are kind of pressed to achieve. Because I'm, I'm 41 now and I'm, I'm trying to think back. Do you think 30 is like an age where women start to kind of reassess these things? So like Anna's from a British Ghanaian a British Guardian woman and I think that by 30 there is still that sort of pressure to have accomplished certain things and if you haven't accomplished it like just questions questions or pitying looks oh okay you're not married or you don't have a long-term partner um you know you don't have a baby you haven't fulfilled your purpose as a woman I think that there though there are kind of changes in, in sort of modern society I think there's still that pressure especially that can come culturally to have achieved certain things. It was written by Jessica Hagen and it was developed through workshops with black women so how did the voices of those women come across in the play how do you bring those out? The three black women in the play um, of different generations and so it comes through in their voice and how they interact with each other like as a family the mum little sister and our main character and then also it comes through the themes of the play so kind of touching on um, what it means to be married and kind of aspirations for life what is the what is security what is a home what is striving for those things and does a timeline actually matter and so the themes of it are things that the women in the workshop came up and and were important for these women and important for Jessica to, to explore because she knows that it touches so many people's lives. The play covers some quite weighty issues, doesn't it? Like maternal mortality, discrimination, fertility. But as you said, it's a comedy, right? So it's looking at these things with humour. Jessica Hagen is, is the writer. Mm-hmm. Why do you think she chose to present it in that way? So I think the play touches on those aspects. So we thought about like maternal mortality. It's uh, and kind of or about complications or kind of things like fireboys and that kind of stuff those things um, come up in the play because it is part of life it's part of these women's lives and the women that are featured in the play and so it's a comedy because there is joy in life and not everything is serious despite the serious things that can happen to you and despite the pressures that can come at you that can have a serious effect on you and so I know what Jessie's told me is that she wants to write something that taps into that, to taps into kind of the realness of life that, you know, though we go through difficult things, there's still a desire in other human beings to kind of find the joy in life. But there's also 
hilarious and outrageous situation we find ourselves in that you know when we look back at it we can you know find the funny absolutely and so there are situations that these characters are put in that you can't help but find funny because it's so outrageous or crazy um and yet these are things that happen to people so when you're approaching this as a director have you done a lot of comedy before I guess most of my work has been drama and I think I have come across comedy and kind of directed like short pieces and stuff. But this is my, I guess, uh, production in terms of a full length play that is a comedy. And I think I would also describe Brenda's Got a Baby as a comedy drama because there is like dramatic aspects to it. I think what is great about the writing is that there is a lot of comedy just in the writing. And so there's not actually a lot, you know, to do to bring those out. I think it's about the clarity to which they, the characters are playing them and playing them from a place of truth to get the comedy out. So I felt really comfortable taking it on, even though I haven't done like you know, lots of plays that are uh, deemed as or labelled as comedy. The pressures that Emma and the other characters feel, is, is that something that you relate to? Is that something that you kind of you see around you and in your life and, and the women that, that you're close to? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I think what's interesting is that this is the first play that I feel like uh, the theme in it and the characters are so close to me that they're so familiar. And so they're familiar in the sense that, you know, I'm a woman in my mid-30s at the moment and I'm single and I don't have children and I'm from a Ghanaian background, just like Emma. And so the themes of, like, pressure to get married or, like, when are you going to get married? The questions of when are you going to get married, you know, Sometimes the pitying look that you can get from family, like, oh, she's alone. That kind of thing, I definitely resonate with and identify with and totally understand that sense of, have I achieved kind of everything I want to achieve? And if I am a single person, does that mean that I'm not successful? Which can, those kind of negative messages can kind of like creep in when you're getting asked you know, a question, lots of questions. So there's so much in it that I identify with, you know, as a single black woman right now. So, yeah. I, I mean, I was in exactly the same situation in, until I got accidentally knocked up at the age of 36. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Oh, wow. You know, like, it's just the way these days, right? And I think what's really interesting about the play is that there is a bit in the play where, spoiler alert, Brenda's got a baby. Basically, there is someone called Brenda, not in the play, but it's someone that Emma knows. And she got, you know, knocked up at an early age and has lots of children. And Emma bumped into her, you know, several years later. Emma's now 29, approaching 30, doesn't have children, not married yet. But this this girl has now got, you know, quite a few kids. And actually, she, she questions, so Emma questions whether she's better off or, like, further ahead than than Brenda, who was kind of judged for for doing it too early, but now in the age of like 29 or something, is admired for her perseverance and her, and being able to bring up the children, like, you know, by herself. So I think there's a whole discourse about, is there an actual right way to do things? And Emma kind of feels like she's, she's been doing things the right way and that she's earned the right outcome but life doesn't work that way and that's like a, a hard lesson that that he learns and I think um, Emma represents a lot of people's society who like if I do things kind of the way you know have the partner first have the child or that that everything will be good for me but that's not real life and it also doesn't necessarily have to be that way 
we sort of mentioned earlier that there are some quite weighty themes that the play touches on. There are some really staggering kind of headline statistics presented here. Like, for example, I think a pretty well-known statistic, black women are almost four times more likely to die during childbirth and pregnancy than white women in the UK. Black sperm donors are underrepresented by 50% compared to the population. I was looking at your website, your bio, and it says that you believe that stories can be a catalyst for change. I wondered what do you hope to achieve with this play? I guess the combination of societal pressures, familial pressures, the pressures that culture and the community you're from can have on you. It's sort of like a, a morality tale in that we see the negative effect of it on this woman. And I guess what I hope that people will see is that those kind of societal pressures and pressures that come from TV, from reality TV, from TV in general, from social media, from all of these things can be detrimental to women. I think there is also a question about why sometimes as women we're made to feel like our worth is, is in whether we become a mother or not. And why that, you know, there's still like a little bit of a stigma. Someone has even chosen not to have children. There's like still a question of but why? Like as in, you know, and not an understanding of that. And so I hope that it, it provokes thought about why there is that pressure and why there isn't a freedom for people to do things at their own time and also to truly do things that they want to do. And also to highlight that certain questions and certain ways of behaviour can translate as pressure on women. You know, the, the question about like, um, when are you going to get married? As if getting married or getting with someone is something that is in your control. As if like falling in love is actually in your control. Like, you can make it happen, meet the right person or that. Like it just, it, it depends on life and, and who you bump into or who you meet. And then whether you develop that connection or have that connection. Like there's so many factors that's outside of your control, but yet the onus is put on the, the person who it's asked of. So I hope that people kind of start to be cognizant and aware of the things that can not be helpful to someone's life. It's funny, isn't it? I thought about this a lot around the time that I got pregnant with my daughter, actually, about how it's so unfair, isn't it? Like the way that modern society is set up, and maybe maybe it's not unfair, maybe it's because of the comparative freedom and choice we have now compared to, you know, like back in the day, you know, when our parents were. Yeah getting together and having kids and whatever. But it seems so unfair that, like, I mean, I was a dickhead when I was 25. Like, it just, I can't <laughs> imagine selecting someone suitable to marry and having children with them at 25. But, like, you know, that's what my yeah. parents did. And they were kind of a bit old when they got married compared to other people. Yeah. I didn't feel ready to have a child until I had a child, you know? So it just sort of seems like yes. <laughs> a really cruel trick of nature in a way. Yeah, it is crazy because also, you know, read and, and kind of consider what what technically they say about a biological clock and like the most fertile part of you of, of time or age as, as a woman. I think they say roughly like up to 35, they say. Yeah. It's like nowadays, because also one thing that I'm going to talk about is that there is a pressure to kind of, you know, get married and children, but there's also pressure to have a career. And yeah. Um, look after yourself and earn money and all of that 
And actually, those kind of pressures coming at you doesn't actually sometimes work. As in, so as a woman, you're expected to do everything. And I think the the pressure to um, achieve a career can mean that a lot of people go, well, and, and like you say, like you want to find yourself, know who you are. So waiting till you're in your 30s might be the, the, the thing that is right for you, especially when you, if you're focusing on something else. Yeah, it feels like there is a cross purposes going on and a lot of like demand and there's no guidebook on trying to reconcile that. So you have written and directed for theatre, radio, film, and with some quite big names, Richard Blackwood and Rinze Kenne. You've directed shows at the Royal Court. You've directed audio plays for BBC Radio 3. I wondered what's your favourite medium for storytelling? You know what? I don't really have one. Because I think I'm very much about the story itself and what story is being told. And I very much enjoy having a varied career. So having, having, getting to do all those things and not being stuck in one lane, really. And I love each of the different meanings for different reasons. So I love the visual aspect of film and, and the fact that you can capture something and it's there and it exists and it's there forever, like, which is different to theatre you create a thing and then you, know, you have a run and then it's, it exists in the minds of people because then it's gone and done and finished but then there's also an excitement about that excitement about the liveness of it and and the fact that it, that it then kind of enters people's minds and hearts and then they remember that story you know they're still moved and changed by it and it's with them it stays with them um, and audio drama I just love how you can paint images in people's minds by just like you know, what you drop into the sound mix. So, yeah, I love all of it. And um, and it's just mainly the aspect of storytelling that I love the most. How do you approach that differently with with audio in terms of directing? Because obviously you're, you're conveying so much with just the voice. It must be really different to direct people like that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it taps into something that is a character trait of mine, which is being really detail-oriented. So... I actually really enjoy it because I'm like, yeah, let's put that put that there. The, the the audience knows kind of someone's approaching. Let's you know, let's have that sizzle so we know something will be fried in the pan, like that that kind of thing. So I, it is very different, but also I like the immediacy. It's quite quick the process of of creating all the drama compared to theatre, where I have a four week process, for example, four or five weeks, sometimes six week process of rehearsal and and tech and previews. So I like the immediacy of audio. Um, I also like the journey of theatre um, because it's all necessary for the way that, that art or that medium works. Different but enjoyable. So what's next for you after this? Have you got anything else lined up? Yeah, so I am gearing up to direct my first play. So there's a play that I've um, written. And so that'll be my debut. Oh. It's going to be on at the Omnibus Theatre in uh, April next year. And so I'm just kind of working on like co-producing and kind of working with all the project aspects of kind of getting that together and fundraising as well and um, so yeah I think just gearing up for that significant step is always something I've always wanted to do to write myself so now I'm getting to direct something that I've written. Well that must feel pretty special what can you tell us anything about what it's about? Yeah so it's interesting that it's really inspired by kind of my journey and uh, my journey to finding love. So I kind of got kind of a tiny overlap with Brenda's Got a Baby 
um, in the sense that it's featuring a black woman. And it's basically about finding love and what it means to find love and when finding love takes longer than you expected. And and also when you are trying to find someone to be your significant other, what things come up in your mind? And like that, the questioning of, is it me or is it like them? As in, you know... <laughs> You know, that kind of thing. And, and I think what's interesting about your story is, you know, the when are you ready for certain things to happen? And what, when is the right time for, for things to happen? And so it's exploring that really and exploring how identity can be affected by by like your, your love life. So Brenda's Got a Baby yeah. is showing at the New Diorama Theatre from the 31st of October to the 2nd of December. Where can we find you on social media, Anastasia, to keep up to date with what you're up to? Yes, so you can find me on Instagram, just my full name, altogether lowercase, Anastasia Osei And then I'm on Twitter or X, whatever it's called these days, as Anastasia Osei K. And then uh, I'm on Facebook and Facebook page as well, which is just my, my full name. Um, and then I've got my website as well, um, which is just AnastasiaOsei.com. Anastasia, thank you so much for chatting to me. Oh, thank you. Can people get tickets just by visiting the new Diorama website? Tickets are available there, presumably, for for Brenda's Got a Baby? Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Good luck with the play and thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me and inviting me on. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we ask the patriarchy, you cannot be serious as we discuss all things women's sports. So very, very subtle opening there. Let's start with tennis then and the wholly unsurprising but deeply depressing news that social media abuse remains a thing for women athletes. So much so, in fact, that Russian tennis player Daria Kazakina, currently ranked 17th in the world, has said that it is, and I quote, completely out of control. Among the screenshots shared on her Twitter account was the delightful message, you are a fucking clown, useless bitch, unable to win a fucking serve. You should be dead. I can't help but think that at jpluke11 needs to gain some perspective here. Yeah, I mean, it's hideous. No one should be receiving messages like that. And unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident. You might remember that the organisers of this year's French Open actually offered specialist technology to block out abusive comments on social media. It shouldn't be necessary, but here we are. Of course, at the time, the WTA said with regards to this particular issue that player safety is the organisation's number one priority. But one person who may not agree with this is current world number one Arena Sabalenka, who has criticised the governing body over its organisation or lack thereof of this year's WTA finals in Cancun. Sabalenka said that she feels disappointed and disrespected by the WTA in light of her experience at the finals. She added, to be honest, I don't feel safe moving on this court a lot of the time. This has nothing to do with trolling, of course, rather the fact that the construction of the court that they're playing on was completed literally days before the tournament started last week. This was because of prolonged negotiations to find a home for this year's event, with Saudi Arabia well in the frame until, well, they weren't. 
You might remember I criticised the prospect of Saudi Arabia as the potential host nation, as did Martina Navratilova and Chris Eva, who I imagine hold a bit more sway than me, to be honest. But yes, it doesn't really feel like the obvious choice for a women's sporting event. Players, however, were mostly pretty happy to go along with it, mind you. I wonder why that might be. Sabalenka isn't alone in this condemnation of the organisation of the current event. Ons Jabur said she wasn't very happy about it, and to be completely fair to them, I don't really blame them. To be experienced in the court for the first time the day before their opening matches is... Well, it's shit, isn't it? And you have to ask, particularly in a sport where the women's draw has achieved mainstream popularity... Why has it proved so difficult to find a host for a tournament for the top eight players in the world right now? I feel like that shouldn't have been so tricky, right? But again, this is nothing new. Women athletes being expected to endure crappy conditions. Look at the Women's World Cup in Canada back in 2015 in which players were expected to play on AstroTurf and the problems we still have in the WSL in this country regarding frozen pitches, etc, etc. Still... What's a career-ending injury between friends, huh? But let's have some good news on this score, no pun intended. From the world of women's football, in fact, where last week Brighton and Hove Albion were granted permission, in principle, from the city's council to find a site for the first ever purpose-built women's football stadium in this country. Now, as a student at Sussex University back in the early thousands, I can tell you it took forever to agree planning permission for the club's Amex Stadium, which has hosted the men's team since 2011 out in Falmer. There are some lovely natural spots around that way, lads. So yeah, don't don't think this is going to happen in the near future. But the fact that a club wants this, the fact that a city council has seen the value in it, well, you know... This is great news, really significant, I would say. At the moment, the women's team play in Crawley, which I can tell you does not have the same appeal as a day trip to Brighton, and it is quite a way away from the rest of the club as well. They play in a stadium with a capacity of around 6,000 compared to the Amex's 31,000. That's not a massive stadium either, to be fair. Maybe their new one will be even bigger than the men's. Unlikely, but I will echo the hopeful sentiment of Labour peer Steve Bassam, who was involved in the Amex Stadium project all those years ago where Brighton and Hove lead others follow let's hope so that's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport welcome to racism and sexism Hannah oh Hannah what happened this week This week, we watched 1953's Western musical and Festival of Minced Oaths, Calamity (laughs) Jane, which, as I stated last week, I love the start of and loathe the end of as a kid. Had either of you two seen this before? I had, but not for a long time. No, Hannah, absolutely not. It will not surprise you to learn. (laughs) And since she's making her first appearance on Rated or Dated, I thought I'd ask, are either of you a fan of Doris Day? I don't think I've seen anything she's ever been in, ever. But she's the one they take the piss out of in Greece, isn't she? Isn't Sandra Day about her? Mm. Yeah. 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 I really like Doris Day, the woman, and like her life is really interesting, isn't she? But the film's not massively for me because a lot of musicals and yeah she's she's very saccharine i guess but she's got incredible comic timing mm. i will say that for doris day yeah i agree with you you know she'd loads of campaigning for animal rights and you know aids awareness great woman but 
as with many other things in life, I'm going to defer to my granddad on the films of Doris Day in that he said her films were much better before she became a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Calamity Jane was a shameless ploy by Warner Brothers to replicate MGM's success with 1950s Annie Get Your Gun and was directed by David Butler, who had worked with Day on a lot of things. The studio borrowed future Clayton Farlow, Howard Keel, from MGM, because this was precisely his wheelhouse. See the aforementioned Annie Get Your Gun and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers for more details. We're going to have to do Seven Brides for Seven Brothers on this at some point as well, because oh, wowzers. Can we do it as a sexism of the week? <laughs> <laughs> Keel played Wild West star Wild Bill Hickok and further to our Young Guns conversation, it's exactly the right age yes. to be doing it. Yeah, I did think yep. that. Round of applause. The score was written by Sammy Fain, who did the music, and Paul Francis Webster, who wrote the lyrics, and the pair won an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Secret Love, which I'm a bit confused by <laughs> as it's a long way from being the best song. Yeah. I mean, the Deadwood stage rhymes the word gang with a gunshot. I mean, come <laughs> on. Doris Day refused to sing Secret Love at the Oscars, by the way. I have no idea why. But it didn't stop it going to number one in the US. At 1961, stage musical version has toured many, many times, although whether a revival would stand up to 2020's audiences is, well, kind of the point of rated or dated. (laughs) Shall we have a little bit of plot? Well, it's what I can only describe as plum silly, In 1870s South Dakota's Black Hills lives Calamity Jane. Doris Day employing near-perpetual, come on, gang, arm. Fucking love that. Come on, gang. It's like a twitch, isn't it? It's like Darling in Blackadder. She can't help (laughs) do it. She's a bit of a joke amongst the almost exclusively male population of Deadwood. And I'm going to say that if I stopped here, this film would be 100% historically accurate. (laughs) But I'm not going to stop here. When Al Swearingen, sorry, Millie, the proprietor of the town saloon, accidentally books a man called Francis rather than a woman called Francis for his stage show, all hell breaks loose. And Calamity promises to go to Chicago to bring back famous actress Adelaide Adams. What could possibly go wrong? Well, funny you should say that. Instead, she picks up Adelaide's maid, Katie, and it turns out she can't sing. Until she can. <laughs> she can't sing loudly enough, I think. She can't project. I think she's nervous, isn't she? Is she isn't she nervous? And then she's less nervous when after Calamity's like... Immediately after. Go on then. All right, I'm fine. Cured. Yeah. Not that that matters because she is a woman and Deadwood <laughs> is full of thirsty miners. Although, interestingly, I don't think gold is mentioned once in this whole film. Oh, once, one of them uh, is working on their... Little patch when claim. she asks, yeah, or a claim. Yeah, uh, I think that's, yeah, the only time I heard it mentioned. Oh, she says anyway. something about a pot of gold. You're all looking for your pot of gold. So she. Why she are you, says Jen? About Katie. I paid oh, attention. Wow. Sort of. <laughs> Calamity and Katie become bezzy mates, and soon they're living together and putting up live, love, laugh ornaments. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. They'd take your dusty bin, Jen. Yeah, they would. <laughs> A love square soon develops between Calamity, a lieutenant she's got her eye on, Katie and Wild Bill. Calamity starts wearing dresses. Young Hannah reaches her limits with this film and turns <laughs> it off. There's a big falling out, some casual gunplay, and it all ends in a double wedding which pays no mind to history or logic. The end. 
So I wanted to talk about the critical response to this film, not least because it's a good way to bring up the two big questions that this film raises. One, why do they hate women so much? Mm. And two, has anybody ever met a Lakota Sioux person? Now, I found a contemporaneous review in the New York Times by someone called Bosley Crowther, who was apparently well-respected, although on the basis of what I'm about to share with you, I'd say erroneously. I think I've shared something from Bosley Crowther as well, because that name, I mean, rings a bell, and similar vibe to what you've just introed, so go for it. Why is this film so sexist? Well, here's a snapshot of the Times, quote, Calamity Jane is a frontier female whose indifference to the graces of her sex is both ridiculous and repulsive. (laughs) Oh, Bosley Crowther. So let's stop and talk about what this film makes of women. Well, having listened to the whole of A Woman's Touch, Mm. the song in the film where they do up the house, I do feel like I need to address many things about me that I'm clearly failing in, in my being a woman if I'm honest with you. Oh, it's got one track that women should be on, eh? That's it. Yeah. I spent the whole of the film being like, when are they going to make her pretty? When are they going to put her in a dress? I know it's coming. When are they going to put her in a dress? And then there was a bit where I was like, I don't think they're going to put her in a dress. I think they're just going to let her be Calamity Jane and it's all going to be fine. And they're never going to put her in a dress. And then they put her in a fucking dress. <laughs> it's just like, I, okay. I think sure. she gets put in the dress very quickly. Yeah, she does. A lot quicker than I thought. I remember yeah, it I being remembered. like... It's not that I think quickly. I said 90% 10% last week, but no, it's about 50-50. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's about an hour in, isn't it? Why are men so stupid? Like, seriously, why does it have to be she literally changes her clothes and you notice that she's pretty? Like, her face is right there, dudes. It's not like she's got loads of makeup on because it wasn't... You know, yeah. available. She looks the same. She looks, She's she looks just exactly dress. the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like Superman taking his fucking glasses yes. off. That's exactly like it. Yeah. Uh, like in Mystery Men, where they're like, "It's just him with glasses on." No, no. The dresses she wears are very pretty. I've got to say, like, not. I mean, not for me, but she rocks them because she's Doris Day in that kind of era of fancy frocks suits her. But yeah, like what. You didn't realise she had tits under that. I don't understand. Is that all it is? Because mm. it makes the men very, very shallow. What do you make of that conversation that she has with Bill Hickok where he tells her she should stop thinking like a, a woman and start thinking like a mannequin? Yeah, that was interesting. Because he was like, you dress like a man and you talk like a man or whatever, but you think like a woman. And uh, I was like, oh, this is interesting. But also, you know, quite sexist. <laughs> Incredibly sexist, yeah. yeah. But it's all part and parcel, isn't it? Women are allowed to be one way, according to this film. And not only is Calamity mocked for being a bullshitter, which she was, and like you say, that is historically accurate. She's mocked mostly for not being what they, these men think mm. a woman should be. That's the, that's the gist of the story, isn't it? Do as you're told, mm. do as we expect a woman to behave. Obviously, we can do a little run around historical accuracy in a bit, if you want. The genuine historical accuracy of Jane and Katie's existence would be that they would be terrified the whole time because they're two women surrounded by a lot of really, really, really flary men. Deborah was an incredibly intimidating place for a woman to be. 
And as we know from Deadwood, the series, which at the start of watching Calamity Jane, I did say out loud, oh, Hannah, can't we just watch Deadwood uh, <laughs> again? Please. In Deadwood, the series, and obviously this wouldn't fit in in a Doris Day film or a film of this time either, but there were definitely like whorehouses, as they yeah. would have been termed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jane worked in loads of them. Okay. So second question that I had about has anyone ever met a Lakota Sioux person? This comes from a 2016 review by our friend, Peter Bradshaw. Oh, Peter. Dare you. Uh, He's not our friend. Who loved this, <laughs> even in 2016, and pondered, quote, However, shooting the Indians, the Confederate headgear, and an affectionate reference to Robert E. Lee, might make it tricky to reclaim this movie for progressive politics generally. I mean, this is me talking now. Personally, I don't think the shooting of the quote, Indians with gay abandon is the problem because that actually happened. Do you know what I mean? It's everything else about the generic racist representation of the Sioux people that's the problem, Mm. not how we interacted with them. Agreed. Like, Mm. absolutely agreed. And also that wording does make it feel like Peter's like, well, I'm all right with it, but some people won't be. (laughs) Quite. I also don't think that Robert E. Lee's given an affectionate mention he's just one of the cards they're collecting yeah so that again is probably representative of how it was i'm never going to argue this film is historically accurate but i just feel like all of the problems peter bradshaw sees in this aren't really problems and he's missed all of the actual problems robert e lee has uh, it might not anymore it might have changed since 2015 but in 2015 statue yeah it's not just a statue there's a fucking university named after him on robert e lee highway in a town in virginia that is entirely dedicated to the memory of fucking confederate generals so it's not like no one talks about him anymore (laughs) it's he'd get more than more than an affectionate mention in that town i would imagine where his you know final resting place is as well there's a bit with the First Nation people, Native American people in the film that I was very confused about because there seem to be some that are just hanging around in Deadwood that no one like (laughs) seems there's there's no explanation, there's no interaction apart from Wild Bill is dressed as one. Mm. And I was like, I didn't understand that. Why are they in a box in the theatre and why is Wild Bill with them dressed as one of them? Well, he bet her. Oh, okay. I must have missed that. He bet her that he would dress like that. Ah. Because it's utterly shameful for him to be dressed both as a woman and as a Native American. I mean, that is like the perfect example of what's wrong with this film. Right, okay. I missed that as well. Luckily, it's hilarious. Oh, wait, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But when Francis arrives and he's in that carriage and there are two of the Sioux jump in with him. And sniff him. Well, one of them lifts up his hat and has a good old look at his head and he's like, yeah. and shits himself. And I was a bit like, oh, don't think you'd get away with that anymore. And nor should you. No. But you know what? There is a group of people who really love this film, apparently. Oh, lesbians. Lesbians. As someone who's not a lesbian, I'm not going to disagree with lesbians over what they see in this film. I have to say, I personally can't see it. It's so heteronormative. <laughs> yeah. But given there wasn't really much on offer for lesbian audiences to enjoy in that period, perhaps you were grateful for what what small crumbs you were offered. I don't see them as a lesbian-coded couple, but that said, I'm not a lesbian, so I just wanted to point that out. What, that you're not a lesbian? Thank you. I'm sure there's some listeners who have been very confused. 
<laughs> no, and listeners, to be honest, not always not a lesbian. So I wouldn't like that message to go out there completely. But I meant I'm not going to criticise what other people see in it. I thought that was really interesting, actually, when you mentioned that to me earlier. Because, of course, in Deadwood, which I will keep banging on about because it's amazing, Jane is a lesbian. She does move in with a woman. She does have a, a female partner. But, yeah, there's nothing to me, again, not a lesbian, that felt coded because it's all about men. They fall out about men. Calamity Jane becomes an absolute wanker because of a man. Well, isn't that just... And, like, mm. vetoes her friendship. Isn't that just, like, the male fantasy that, like, if women are friends, it must be because they secretly want to, like, do each other? Oh, these two are suddenly best pals. Like, why are they best pals? Or maybe they... I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything in it to me that makes me think, like, oh, they seem like they're having a secret relationship. They're just yeah. mates. They're hanging out. Now I'm going to bring up Deadwood. They're best pals. Because they're the yeah. only women there. Mm. And what Deadwood does amazingly well is put the few women who are in Deadwood together because they have to be friends. And therefore you end up with these people from unbelievably disparate mm. backgrounds and cultures who are forced to be friends because they're the only other women that can help them with certain issues or the, the only other people that can offer mm. them friendship. I think sort of the opposite to what you said as well, Jen, in that like for most or a lot of heterosexual men certainly this is what what we get mm. sold and see is that actually if women are lesbians they think it's just because they've not met them yet a lot of the yeah. time yeah, yeah no that's not really what i meant but yes no i agree with you yeah i might try and find something i wrote back when we were a magazine which was a historically accurate thing about calamity jane's mm, life it was a good and piece. i might if anyone if i can work out how to get my hands on it there but obviously she didn't marry bill hickok in fact the chances are she didn't really know bill hickok very well they arrived in town at the same time and he died about four days later so oh. she bullshitted a backstory about them which has been believed by hollywood because it's a good story which is why i think she was actually as an uneducated woman pretty close to being a genius to yeah. be honest she was also a massive alcoholic, which obviously she wouldn't have been on the sarsaparillas. I did have to look up. Did sarsaparilla used to have booze in it? And I was like, no, it's never had booze in sarsaparilla. But yeah, I think picking historical holes in this is, would be ridiculous because it is ridiculous. So what I wanted to say, perhaps on a more positive level, was I still think this has some absolute bangers in it. The Windy City is brilliant. The whole thing about it, the way it's done as a song, I loved it when I was little and I loved watching it again the other day. Now, I don't love a musical, as you know, with some very specific exceptions. I I thought Whip Crack Away, Whip Crack Away, Whip Crack Away was cracking. No pun intended. Yep, snap. And apart from that, the, the rest of it left me cold, I have to say. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of lots of the songs, but... I really liked the vibe of the songs. It's all very upbeat, apart from the one that Bill sings and that can get in the bin. But even Secret Love is yeah, is, is really nice. I didn't hate the songs, but I didn't like love any of them as much as Whip Crack Away. What I will say, as a positive, if we're talking positives, is I really like Jane. And I actually think Doris Day does a really good job as Jane, albeit it's a very different calamity Jane to history or to Deadwood. But... I think she was really fun to watch. Her comic timing is excellent and she really does give it all with that, like like you said, the arm moves and come on gang, let's get this done. But also the voice and the way she carries herself. I think she's great in it. I will say this film undoubtedly 
had an impact on me as a gender non-conforming young girl. I thought it was amazing mm. that she even existed in the way that she existed before. Like, obviously, yeah. they did that awful thing to her. Um, <laughs> and I actually know a, a couple of other people, a couple of friends of mine, a couple of whom are lesbians, who also were exactly the same about this film, just loved the first half of it, because they were just like, look at that woman. That's not how women are, and thought it was a, a great sight to Yeah, I wonder if that's why it, she became the kind of, you know, the, the idea about the relationship between the two, I wonder if that is the reason why, because she was a sort of gender non-conforming character and in that respect was relatable to people. And so, yeah, like you mm-hmm. say, the, the yeah, crumbs that, that were yeah. given. I don't know. I yeah. enjoyed watching it, actually. I didn't like... I, I didn't have a horrible time watching this. I agree with what Mickey said about Doris Day. I think she's really good in it. Her comic timing's ace. Whip Crack Away is a, a banger and I've been thinking about it all morning. <laughs> the Deadwood uh, stage. Like, what I would say, obviously... It does all go terribly badly wrong. But like I agree with everything you've said as well, Hannah. Like Just to see her there doing that at that time in 1953, that's amazing. That's incredible. That would have meant something to a lot of people. They do what they do to her. But like I said at the beginning, I was waiting for that to happen the whole fucking way through. And I knew nothing about this film. It's the inevitable outcome. It's 1953. It's like... It's of its time. Yeah, let's go back to that thing. It's repulsive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But she does retain the, the smallest bit of that gender non-conforming mm. behaviour in that when they get married, one, she's carrying a gun, lols, and two, she climbs up on the front of the stagecoach. I feel like even though she and Bill get together in one of the funniest, quickest turnabouts you've ever seen from two heartbroken yeah. people in inverted commas, they are really well matched because he has liked Jane as she was. Yeah. And, you know, now he fancies her because she's got a frock on. But he has liked Jane for a long time as she was and accepted her as she was. He just didn't, you know. He's way hotter than that other guy as well. So I think she won, to be honest. And that's the important thing. Exactly. <laughs> just think how Kill made me think, oh man, I wonder if there's some uh, Dallas on YouTube I can enjoy Dallas. right now. Because... Should we rate or date Dallas? Oh God, it was so bad. There must have been brilliant. a Dallas film, right? They must yeah. have done that. No, I think it was always just a series. Feels like it would have been absolutely just ripe for a spin-off, right? Okay, Calamity Jane, rated or dated? Big hard dated, but I enjoyed it. I I liked watching (laughs) it, but yeah, very, very dated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really dated, but not a surprise that it was dated. And still, didn't hate the two hours I spent watching. There's no other word for it. Dated. (laughs) Quite brilliantly, it's actually one of our most binary ones that we've had for ages. (laughs) Yeah. Who's next? It's me. I think I'm bringing some misery to your lives. Awesome. Thanks, Jen. (laughs) Next week, we'll be watching The Piano. Got a good soundtrack. I think it does, yeah, yeah. Might try it on the dog. She loves piano music. Standard issue for all women.